the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Would you take your Bibles and open them with me to our passage for the morning, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. And as you do that, I want to read for you a familiar passage of how Jesus describes Christians, how Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 describes the church. In verses 14 through 16, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You can imagine this in the ancient world where there was no electricity, there were no street lights, there was uh, gas, there was uh, fires to light the way, little lanterns and lamps. And you could imagine that on a hill there was a city with houses that were lit with lamps. And people would see that city and they would know that city. It would be a beacon for the weary traveler that no longer must he travel on the cold streets. No longer would he be susceptible to thieves and coyotes. But there it is. There's his destination. You can imagine that a city like this in a place that was so physically dark that people would even use that as a guidepost. Well, how do I get to such and such area? Well, you head towards that city on a hill. Go that direction or head west as you face the city on the hill. And so this picture that Jesus gives us talks about Christians. It talks about the church and the brightness that we shine to the world around us. There's so much that can be related to this passage in Matthew 5. And many people have talked about and looking at other passages and preaching different sermons and writing different books have uh, allegorized this passage in Matthew 5 about what could make us as believers as the church shine brighter, but also on the flip side, what may dim it. And what dims it is the sin and the repercussions of sin. In fact, Jesus says right here, he says, let your light shine in such a way that they may see your good works. Good works, of course, is not just legalistic works, but it's works from a heart that desires to honor God. And so it is our behavior in reflection and in response to the holiness of God in our personal pursuit of holiness that makes us shine brighter and have a greater impact in a dark, dark world. And as it relates to 1 Peter 5, I believe that there is one sin in particular and many could argue, and I would argue, will argue later on, that it is the root of pretty much every other sin that, the destroy, that destroys the testimony and dims the light of the church, the city on a hill. And that sin is pride. Peter writes in verse 5 of chapter 5, You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders and all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
We will be taking a couple weeks to look at the topic of humility, but we'll look at this verse in its entirety this morning. And as we focus on verse 5 of 1 Peter 5, I want to give you three relationships that demand or require humility. Three relationships from this verse that require humility. The first relationship is young Christians and church elders. Young Christians and church elders. Young, not as in new believers, but young in age. The first part of verse 5 says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Now in New Testament times, much like today, men were divided into two categories based on age. Generally speaking, you had the young and the old. Very simple. We even understand that, right? We, we talk about people. You hear someone's dating or you talk about someone in your church like, oh, is that the person who's older? Is he older than me? Are they younger than her? And the younger men that Peter addresses here would be who we would call the youth, uh, but not quite just ending at teen years or even in their 20s. In his culture, the dividing line between the young and the old would be anywhere between the age of 30 and 40, depending on who you ask with anyone under that age being considered younger or youth or a young man or a young woman. But regardless of what the cutoff is, younger men, Peter says, are to be subject to their elders. Now, if you were to read verse 5 just on its own outside of a study of the rest of 1 Peter or at least of 1 Peter chapter 5, a simple reading of this verse, in other words, out of context, you would assume by the English that he's talking about younger people submitting to older people. However, when we look at the context of this verse, we see that Peter is talking about elders in the church, the office, the overseer, the shepherd that we've talked about over the past couple of weeks. And he uses the very same word. And so clearly in the context and in the grammar, he is talking about young men must, in particular, submit to the elders in the church, those who are called the shepherd of the church, those with the title of elder, right? You guys following me? And it is true that many elders in churches were and are older in age. That's natural. Because with age comes a wisdom, comes a love, comes a grace, comes an experience that lends to being a good elder or pastor or shepherd of God's people. Now, of course, at the same time, not all older people in the church are wiser than all the younger people, and those who uh, are with the role of an elder sometimes would be considered younger than most of those in the church. And in fact, we have many examples of godly younger men in the Scriptures. We know that all the disciples of Jesus Christ were considered young. Paul was young. Timothy was young. And of course, Jesus himself died in his 30s, and so he was young. Nevertheless, what Peter is specifically calling for is that younger men submit to the elders in the church. And the word he uses in the Greek, be subject, is the same word that Peter used back in chapter 2 when telling servants to be submissive to their masters, the same word he used in chapter 3 when telling wives to be submissive to their husbands. Now, to be clear and to give you the context of the entirety of Scripture, 
Another passage, many of which we looked at uh, the last couple of Sundays here, such as Hebrews 13, 17, it says that all Christians are commanded to submit to the hierarchy in the church. In other words, all Christians in the local church are to submit to their elders. So it's actually kind of interesting that here Peter specifically addresses young men. And you'll notice he's kind of done this before where he addresses different uh, social classes or genders or uh, demographics and then kind of goes from this group to this group, fathers to kids, mothers and children, slaves, masters. But here, if you look at the whole passage, he calls out younger men and then doesn't really talk about any other demographic except for all Christians. And so this may seem strange at first, but really... If you kind of take a step back and just let logic take its course, it isn't really that hard to understand. In fact, the reason he would specifically talk about young men to submit to elders is as simple as the fact that even as I said that and even as I pointed out that he only addresses young men, those in this room right now who are 40 and older were nodding their heads and go, oh, good job, Peter, they need to hear this, those young bucks. Well, those under 40 thought more, how strange that they would call us out. What is, what is the exegesis behind this? You don't need a theology degree to know that younger people have a harder time with authority than older people. That's all it is. It's that symbol. Younger people tend to push back against submission more than older people. Young people t- tend to leap and bound ahead, whereas humility and submission is less of a problem for those who are older and more mature. Just thinking of our own group. Oftentimes it is those within our church who are young and newly married who struggle with perhaps the biblical roles of marriage. It is the older women and the older men who are counseling them and saying, no, 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 you need to do this. This is the best way. This is for the best. And so Peter is making a simple, straightforward, and helpful command to young men, submit to your elders, be careful. You need to listen up because you, just by virtue of your age, by virtue of your youth, you have a tendency to think your way is the right way, but you've got to listen. You need to be humble. And the word submit, as we've seen elsewhere in First Peter, is a military term that literally means line up under somebody. And remember, this is all within the context of humility. In other words, the reason young men in particular, but all young people, and yes, I'm generalizing, but generalizations come from somewhere, tend to have a bigger problem with submission because they have a bigger problem with humility. It's not that this principle is without exception. Of course, there are plenty of older people who have a problem with authority and many young people who submit and follow better than older people. But Peter is addressing a problem that is generally true, young men especially. After lining out and explaining all the responsibilities and the heart attitude of the shepherd, he says, you too, likewise, in the same vein, you young men, you better listen to these guys. So our first relationship that demands humility is between the young man and the church elder. And so the warning is clear. If you are younger here, 
whatever your particular workplace or culture or society you, you, you live or buy into says that you are younger, you need to be extra self-aware. You need to take extra caution with the sin that is so prevalent in the church, but especially in your age group. Now, before the rest of us get too smug, Peter continues and broadens the call of humility to all Christians, which gives us the second relationship that requires humility, Christian to Christian. He says, and all of you, all Christians, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Peter moves from younger men to all of you, all believers. And this word picture that he uses, this picture of clothing oneself with humility, is a, he uses a word that someone in that day would actually use. It, it speaks of a garment that they would pull over themselves or were ready wearing clothing and they, it's an outer garment and it would be tied and fastened in some way with a clasp or a, a knot or a bow. And it's actually a strong word, clothe yourself. And in a physical sense, it would often refer to an apron that a herdsman or a slave would tie over their tunic to protect the tunic from getting dirty. And you get, we kind of get this now, right? Uh, chefs wear special coats. Doctors, surgeons wear special coats. You wear an apron uh, when you cook. But all the more important, when people didn't have 10, 15 shirts or blouses in their closet like we do today, and clothing was more expensive, it was hard to make, it was harder to come by. And so they would, especially if you're out with the animals or you're doing something that in, in, involved manual labor, which there's no, like, you know, cement driveways, right? It's all dust and dirt. You would want to protect your main uh, tunic, your clothing, with this apron. And it'd be important to, to tie it tight to protect yourself and to cover your entire body. And so the picture there is clothe yourselves with humility. Don't just find one area uh, in your daily life, such as work or with Christians or uh, with your spouse or whatever, or just one area like your speech, but in everything you think, in everything you do, in everywhere you go, with everyone that you interact with, completely envelop yourself with humility. And this picture of all-encompassing humility, when he says toward one another, it is a mutual and universal humility. Not just people that you think are above you, like your boss, but everyone. In other words, every single member of the body of Christ is to exhibit humility to every other member of the body of Christ. All Christians to all Christians. Now, humility, although it may not seem like it, is much easier for the Christian than for the unbeliever because of our relationship with God. Because the foundation of true humility, the kind of humility that Christ exhibited, the kind of humility that we are called to follow and, and model, is, the foundation of that is, the recognition of our total dependence on God for everything. And the reason I say that makes it easier for Christians is because unbelievers don't recognize that. It's harder for them to be humble when they think that all of their money came from their hard work. 
and all of their degrees came from their hard work, and all of their kids' good looks and health and education came from their hard work. Whereas the Christian understands that ultimately, yes, we, were, we strive to be good stewards, and we did work hard, and we did pull all-nighters, and we went to dozens of interviews, but ultimately it was God who gave us all of this. Now, in a, you know, as we live that out, that makes it harder because we have that same thinking like, look what I did, oh, but God gave it to us. But at least we have that understanding. We have that connection, which doesn't just make it easier to have biblical humility. It makes it possible. The unbeliever cannot have biblical humility, which is true humility, because they don't have that relationship and understanding of God with God. And so... When we talk about humility towards one another, it's the same foundation. It's the same principle. It's an understanding that we all are in the same boat. Nobody is any better than anyone else because everything they have was not earned, but it was given as a gift. So even if the world, even if society looks at us and says, no, he's richer than you, he's better than you, this guy's a manager and you're just an underling, he's better than you, and the world sees it this way, whether it's because of wealth or social class or, or education or whatever it may be, we understand as Christians that it is ultimately God who made us this way. It, it, it is ultimately God who gave that, you that position. It's ultimately God that made you aware of that job opening, that gave you that title, that gave you that degree, that gave you that ability to pull all-nighters, that gave you those parents, whatever it may be. And so the result is humility. We can't look at someone else in the church and say, think I'm better than you because I'm worth millions and you're barely scraping by to pay rent in your studio apartment because God gave me those millions and God gave me that studio apartment. God gave me the trial of poverty and maybe God gave me the money because he knew I would give it away, whatever it may be, right? It all comes from the Lord. And so that's why the foundation of humility has to be an understanding that God has given us everything. And so the result, when you have the right perspective, right focus on God, is humility. Literally, lowliness, lowliness of mind or self-abasement. The humility reverses the rivalry between people, even in the church, That stems from self-love, which is another way of saying pride. Pride is just self-love. Humility is an essential and fundamental virtue of the Christian. And I hope that my explanation of the foundation of humility helps you understand why it is essential to your walk. Because it all starts with God. If you don't recognize that God is in control of everything and gave you everything then there's going to be something wrong with any other foundation as you live out your life. And this is so essential that it was exemplified and embodied and then explained by the Lord Himself, Jesus Christ, who did not come to be served but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many, Mark 10.45. Jesus Christ, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, Philippians 2, 6 and 7. 
And the verse goes on to say, to the point, his humility was to the point that he died to give his life for us. His humility is seen not in his, not merely, rather, in his willingness to die for our sins, but even that he came to earth at all. God, very God. Never experienced sleep before. Right? Never, neither slumbers nor sleeps. But when he was human, he had to sleep. He had to rest. He had to get eight hours of sleep or whatever it was to replenish his body. He had to stop to eat in order to continue preaching. He didn't need to do that when he was speaking through the prophets. He said, Isaiah, let's pick this up later. I've got to have a snack. My blood sugar is low. But that actually happened to him while he was on earth. He had to walk. He had to bleed. He had to, not just on the cross, he had to cut his feet when he was walking in those sandals. He had to use the bathroom. Then he had to eat again. He had to take naps. He had to drink water. He had to stay hydrated. None of these things are qualities of God in heaven. And so his humility is seen in that he set aside voluntarily his attributes of God to become like us so that he could die. And because of his example and command, we are to be humble as well. In fact, both passages that I just read from Mark 10 and Philippians 2 are preceded by the command and the call to believers to be humble, and then it sets forth Jesus as the ultimate example. Ephesians 4, more in line with our passage, Ephesians 4 tells us that humility is a key way to preserve the unity of the Spirit within the church. And you've been around, you know for me the key passage on humility is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, the ending of which I just read. But would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 3. And it defines what humility is, and then it goes on to set forth what the opposite of humility is, and then, of course, the example of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing. Not some things. Not it's okay when you're tired. Not it's okay when people are rude to you. Or not it's okay when you're with unbelievers or when you're with believers. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And again, I'll read for you. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he starts off and he says, to be humble, you have to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing to just serve yourself. Do nothing out of sense, a sense of self-entitlement. Do nothing because you think you deserve better. You are owed this by the man, by society, by whatever. And I believe that's exactly one of the greatest attacks on humility in our society today. And that is the sense of self-entitlement, the entitlement mentality, the thinking that I'm right, 
because I'm an individual with rights. I say what I want, I do what I want, and everyone has to be okay with it. And for the most part, that's what society says. We're going to be okay with it, even if it's breaking the law, even if it's hurting the people who enforce the law. And if you hold a particular view on an issue, then naturally in our society it makes absolutely no sense for someone else to hold another view, right? It's not, I mean, it's not just politics, but I think politics is in the news all the time now, so that's very clear. But we see this in everything now. It's not just like, we get it, he's the Republican. It's like, how in the world can you vote for this guy? It makes no sense. You're a fool. You're an idiot. Christians are fools. If you're, you know, and it's just like, it's not just like, all right, maybe we'll win next time, right? It's Hillary's a crook. Hillary needs to go to jail. Hillary should be killed. I mean, there's no, there's no balance here. It's just, I hold this view, and if you don't hold it, you must hate women. If you don't hold it, you must go out at night with all your fellow Christians and go and just take baseball bats and beat homosexuals, right? It's just, our society is crazy. And this is our culture. I mean, think about it. We tend to see things only from our perspective, which is fine. It's normal. The problem comes when we cannot concede that there may be another perspective. Not just on big things, like moral and political issues, but even like how to serve communion. The best way to fix my car. The best way to get the kids dressed in the morning. It's like we, everyone has its my way or the highway mentality, and this is why our society is in such a mess. I mean, this can be something as simple as being shocked that someone thinks a certain way or, or shocked that someone doesn't like pizza or whatever your favorite food is. How in the world can you not like that? Doesn't everyone like pizza? You like pizza, and you're just seeing everyone else through the lens of your personal experience. That's pride. It's a lack of humility. It leads to a lack of sympathy. Someone lives in a different way. Someone hasn't had the experiences you've had, and so, oh, man, that guy is something else. He's different. He's weird. Simply because he doesn't do things in the way that you define as normal, and what do you define as normal? Your life. The guy in the mirror. The girl in the mirror, Right? Everyone else thinks you're not normal, but no, my way is normal because my way is the way and the world says have it your way, self-entitlement, right? At best, it is naive. At worst, it is God-dishonoring pride. And even in the church, there is a growing intolerance of anyone doing anything differently than you. And this is why it's so great that we have the Bible. I understand that a lot of the things we're talking about here are extra-biblical. You understand the difference between extra-biblical and unbiblical? Unbiblical means it's wrong. You're doing something against the Bible. Extra-biblical is something that's not addressed in the Bible. It's neither right nor wrong, but it just depends on your personal preferences, such as dating. There's no dating in the Bible. Dating is extra-biblical. Watching TV or not watching TV, that's extra-biblical. No TVs in biblical times, right? So these types of things. And it occurred to me that one of the problems of this self-entitlement and and, and the lack of understanding in the church is that we have now held the local church as the standard rather than the Word of God. 
You say, I, I don't think that's true. Let me explain this to you. You ever had someone who came to this church or another church and they say, we don't like how that church preaches? You know, for example, I'm more of a charismatic, someone would say. So I'm going to find a church that has the kind of music I like. I'm going to find a church that teaches what I teach. The standard becomes the local church. And this is a problem because all of a sudden the local churches have set themselves as a standard. This is our doctrine. This is our doctrine. This is our philosophy of ministry. Well, this is our philosophy of ministry. And nowhere is anyone saying, well, the Bible says this. Right? And this is a problem. Again, a lack of humility is always going to be found when we don't see the only source of truth and the foundation of our faith as the only source of truth and the foundation of our faith, God and His Word. You put anything else there on that platform and that foundation, any man, your experience, even a local church, you got a problem. And it doesn't help when we look at the culture and we let the culture seep into our thinking, as Paul warned the Romans not to do, and we end up seeing ourselves as a standard of right or wrong. Not, not right or wrong like ethically, like the Bible. We default to the Bible still. But right or wrong in terms of how we should do things on a practical day-to-day level. That's very dangerous. And as much as this is a danger and an enemy to humility, you've got to understand that there is an even greater and more powerful danger and enemy to pride. And that danger to pride, an enemy of pride, is God. Our third and final relationship that requires humility is a relationship between God and man. Look at the end of verse 5. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a quote of Proverbs 3.34. It's also quoted in James James 4, 6. If you were to read Proverbs 3, you will see starting in verse 21, you basically have a father who's giving godly encouragement to a son. And he's encouraging this son in how to have sound judgment and discernment. And as you read through the chapter, Proverbs 3, starting in verse 21, you'll see this father giving various prohibitions to his son things that he wants his son to avoid in order to honor God and live a godly life. And in all of those prohibitions, you will see that the underlying or controlling thought behind all of them is the difference between how the Lord treats the wicked and how the Lord treats the righteous. And here, in Proverbs 3.34, quoted by Peter, that same distinction is made. First, God is opposed to the proud. Now, I need you to understand that this is serious stuff. Say, yeah, yeah, I know. God doesn't like the proud. No. The proud, first of all, is the person who is arrogant. We understand this, who considers himself to be above others. The proud is defined as someone who has a heart that is puffed up. He compares himself to others and decides that he is above them, and the result is that he scorns them or scoffs at them. And this idea comes out, of, comes out in the proverb. God opposes such men. 
And I said that this is serious stuff. The reason is, is because that word oppose is a picture. And that picture, when we talk about the opposition of God, is God singling out the proud as his enemies and arming himself for battle, for war, to attack and destroy the proud. That's the Hebrew word that's used there. God opposes such men. On the other hand, he gives grace to the humble. We know that friendship with God is all about grace. If we are in Christ, it's because of grace. It's in grace that we can belong to him, and it's grace that he showers upon us every second of every day if we are his. And of all people, humble Christians are those that are the most thankful because we have a full recognition of all that we have received. That is grace, right? Grace means something that is freely given, undeserved, something that is not earned, right? For example, your, your salary, even your Christmas bonus is not grace. It's not a free gift. You worked for that. You earned that. You expect it. Grace is someone who it's not even winning, winning the lottery because you even had to buy a lottery ticket for that, even if it's a buck and you got $30 million. Even that, you bought something. Grace is completely unearned. In contrast, the proud cry out, everything is mine. This is mine. This is mine. The kids are mine. My money is mine. My education is mine. I did it. I did it. Me, me, me. And it's interesting because we've kind of taken this verse piece by piece. But understand that when we look at the whole verse, he says, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. He doesn't say toward God. He said, Christians, clothe yourselves in humility toward one, of, toward one another. And then he says, because God's opposition is toward the proud. He doesn't say, when you're proud, you know, be humble towards God because God is opposed to you if you're not humble towards him. He says, God's opposed to the proud in the context of us being proud towards one another not directly toward him. Why is that? Well, it's because any sin is directly toward him. And pride is manifested toward other people which shows a lack of gratitude and humility before him. You see, the foundation of humility in our understanding of who God is and what he has done in our lives expresses itself not just in humility like in your prayers when you're talking to him, but it expresses itself in humility when you're interacting with under other individuals. So in other words, why is there a distinction between humility towards people and opposition from God? There is no distinction. It's all the same. For the Christian, humility in God's eyes is only expressed towards other people on a practical level. I mean, I don't think anyone's in your prayer sense, I'm better than you, God. Right? I deserve this. We, we, you know, we check ourselves when we're praying, right? 
We don't shake our fists at God. We don't say, how dare you, God? Don't you know I deserve this? Don't you know that I got myself into that school and I did this, so you need to give me a better job, more job openings, whatever it may be? No, we never pray that. We know better. But we sure say that to our boss. We sure complain about that to our friends. We sure treat people in the church as if we're better than them. And so this warning and encouragement, if you're humble, from God is because of how we treat other people. And think about it. Think about the seriousness of pride all the way in the beginning. Is that not how sin entered the world? Because Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. Adam and Eve wanted to question God, but even further back. It is that same sin, pride, that caused Satan to challenge God and be cast out of heaven, thus becoming his and our greatest enemy. Pride is the sin, as I said earlier, that leads to arguably every other sin because sin, whether it's anger or lust or impatience, is all about us. I want to be there now. I don't want traffic now. I want this kid to be dressed now, right? This guy didn't do what I want, so I'm going to yell at him. I'm going to get mad. It's all from pride. It's all self-centeredness. It's self-entitlement. And pride doesn't discriminate. You're wealthy, you can be proud. The poor can be proud. The successful, the unsuccessful can all be proud. The educated, the uneducated, the homeless, the person who owns 20 properties, they can all be proud. does not discriminate. It it has its hands in everything. And it is a destroyer of churches. Isn't that why church splits happen? Isn't that why people leave the church? It's not what I want. He didn't do what I said. He didn't take my advice. Right? It's not always the people. Sometimes it's the elders. The elders got proud. They wanted power. They told people to be quiet. They spread gossip. They spread lies. They wanted power. Power hungry. They wanted money. Whatever it may be, church splits. So even in the church, it's there. It destroys churches. But thankfully, even though there are a million and one ways that pride can be manifested. God has given us a one-size-fits-all garment to deal with all of it. That's humility. It's humility. doesn't matter how your, your pride is manifested, who it's manifested toward. Humility is one-size-fits-all, deals with all of it. Gossip, humility deals with it. Lust, humility deals with it. Anger, humility deals with it. Think you're better, humility deals with it. Hoarder, greedy, humility deals with all of it. And aside from offending God and sinning against Him, pride has practical ramifications for how we live out our faith and how we are a testimony on earth. I started like this talking about the city on a hill. Pride causes infighting within the church. And this is not the only reason to seek humility, right? To end infighting. It's to glorify God. But on a practical level, the strained relationships within the church because of one or several people's pride among believers is causing us as a whole. Yes, just you. Yes, your private conversation on Burlingame Game Avenue last night. Yes, your private text message that you think nobody else will see between just two people in the church. It affects all of us, and the city on a hill fades in its brightness. There's a song, a poem I came across that in an artistic way depicts 
the danger of this as well, and I want to read for you the lyrics. Did you hear of the city on the hill, said one old man to the other. It once shined bright and would be shining still, but they all started turning on each other. You see, the poets thought the dancers were shallow, and the soldiers thought the poets were weak. And the elders saw the young ones as foolish, and the rich man never heard the poor man speak. But one by one, they ran away with their made-up minds to leave it all behind, and the light began to fade in the city on a hill. Each one thought that they knew better, but they were different by design. Instead of standing strong together, they let their differences divide. And one by one, they ran away with their made-up minds to leave it all behind, and the light began to fade in the city on the hill, and the world is searching still. But it was the rhythm of the dancers that gave the poets life. It was the spirit of the poets that gave the soldiers strength to fight. It was the fire of the young ones. It was the wisdom of the old. It was the story of the poor man that needed to be told. And it is the rhythm of the dancers that gives the poets life. It is the spirit of the poets that gives the soldiers strength to fight. It is the fire of the young ones. It is the wisdom of the old. It is the story of the poor man that's needing to be told. But one by one, will we run away with our made-up minds to leave it all behind as the light begins to fade in the city on the hill? What is it for you? Is it an insistence that your way is the right way? Is it a judgmental attitude that only sees what people do wrong and never acknowledging what they do right? Is it a lack of prayer? Is it a lack of service? Is it a refusal to be served? Maybe, and I know I've been digging in on this even last week, but maybe it's digging in your heels when it comes to your God-ordained role as a husband, wife, father, or child, forgetting that that same God who gave you your thoughts, gave you your dreams, gave you your profession and education is the same God who has called you to perhaps leave it all to fulfill your role. Maybe your pride caused you to scoff at people's hurt, thinking they are weak so you lack sympathy and can't even comprehend empathy. We all exhibit pride in some ways. And as we close and we move to communion, I want you to take a couple minutes, maybe bow your heads if you want, and just listen to this. Listen and meditate and reflect on your heart and your pride that the Lord may lead you to repentance. Repentance.